One of the best lessons I have learned in leadership is that to become successful, you have to help yourself, but you only become significant when you help others. My name is Paul Aladinika, and you are listening to the 11th Thing podcast. On this podcast series, we will be exploring the secret source of organizational success, specifically the habits, behaviors, and cultures that make organizations exceptional. As part of this, we're going to be focusing on the transformational role played by leadership and leaders. Why? Because great leadership isn't just the best thing, it is the 11th thing. Welcome and congratulations, you made it this far. Thank you for listening to this inaugural episode of the 11th Thing podcast. My name is Paula Adenika, I'm the host. To begin with, I'm going to give you a little bit of my backstory and what I bring to the issues that we're going to be exploring in this podcast series. Then I'm going to explain what the 11th Thing podcast is about and what its objectives are. And from there, we'll move on to the topics, the specific topics that I'm going to explore in this episode of the podcast. And then finally, to the extent possible, I'm going to draw some conclusions from what's been presented, the information that I've shared with you and say something about what else you can look forward to for the rest of this series. So in terms of backstory, from my perspective, I've worked in senior management in the public sector for about 15 years. In total, I've worked in the public sector for just over 20 years. Prior to that, I also worked in frontline special needs and supported housing in the not-for-profit and charitable sector. And prior to that, I worked for about three years, two or three years in the hotel and catering industry in a management role. So quite a sort of varied and eclectic background. But one thing it did do is it gave me the opportunity to develop a deep interest in organizations, in organizational culture, in organizational leadership, in branding, personal branding, uh, in teamwork, team development, and also discretionary economics. Those are issues that I'm really, really passionate about. So what is the 11th thing? Well, the idea of the 11th thing came about during a conversation I had with colleagues. And at that time, I mentioned to one of them that if your manager asks you to do 10 things, the action that will define you will not be any one of those 10 things. It will be the 11th thing. So by definition, the 11th thing is the performance of the unasked task. It's the action that goes over and above what's required or demanded of you. It's a decision to keep going when everyone else has given up. The 11th thing is basically what distinguishes you from the 99 other people who apply for a job that you desperately want. It's what keeps you in people's memory long after you've left the room. As Jeff Bezos, I think, once said, that your brand is what people say about you when you've left the room. That, in many ways, is the 11th thing. And sometimes people describe it as this sort of X factor or the or the secret source. It's the 11th thing. And think of it this way, you know, what distinguishes the ordinary from the extraordinary. It's one word, it's extra. Therefore, the 11th thing is when ordinary people do extra things. And practitioners of the 11th thing can be found everywhere and anywhere in an organization. They manage big teams, small teams, and no teams. They start work early in the morning and make big strategic decisions. They start work late at night and take out the trash. So they're basically your chief executive, or they can be your cleaner. The key point to make is that wherever employees are given the permission to try and the right to fail, you will see the 11th thing demonstrated. So what are the objectives? What are the objectives and goals of this podcast? What are we trying to achieve? Well, fundamentally, there are three key objectives to determine whether there really is a secret source to organizational success. And if so, what are the key ingredients and who has the recipe? To better understand what makes some organizations ideally suited for exceptionalism, why is it that some achieve great things and others with access to the same resources and capacity or even greater capacity do not become exceptional? 
And finally, to forensically deconstruct the role of leadership in driving exceptionalism. What sort of leadership mindset is needed for average organizations to become good and for good organizations to become great? Can this mindset be nurtured and cultured? And if so, how? In this podcast, we are going to be exploring all of this and how are we going to do it? Well, basically, we're going to be taking a deep dive look at how organizations function. I've always believed that organizations are living entities. And what we're basically going to be doing is we're going to be examining the patient. We're going to be looking at the vital organs of organizations. In addition to that, we're going to turn things on their head. We're going to explode myths. We're going to challenge orthodoxy, challenge conventional wisdom with uncommon perspectives. And I really do hope that the insights gained from this whole approach will shed some light and present challenge in a way that will help you to think differently about some of these issues. And if it does, then I think we would have achieved our objectives. To get to the heart of these issues, we will be inviting guests. So I will be inviting colleagues who I have worked with in previous employment, including a number of those who have real richness in terms of skills and experience and knowledge to deconstruct and examine these issues in a lot more depth and detail. And these will be across the organizational hierarchy. They won't just be senior people. There'll be people from across the organizational hierarchy because the key thing is that the 11th thing, it can manifest itself absolutely anywhere in an organization and it often does. Also, just so that you're aware, I'll be drawing really heavily on the insights from the dozens of blogs that I've published on medium.com. Some of you may be aware that I do blog on medium. These blogs are essentially bite-sized summaries of the issues that I'll be exploring in more depth and detail in this podcast series. So as the introduction sets out, we're going to be talking about organizations an awful lot in this podcast. Remember, the word extra separates ordinary from extraordinary, and we're going to be obsessively curious about the extra bit because that is the 11th thing. We want to come to some sort of rational conclusion about what the extra bit is and what it could or should be like in organizations, how it should manifest itself and be represented in organization. This episode will start basically describing organizational cultures. So for me, organizational cultures are absolutely fascinating. If you really want to find the doorway into an organization, into its thinking, how it positions itself, its values, its beliefs, its ideology, cultures are the way to do it. And they distinguish exceptional organizations from organizations that are not exceptional. As one of my managers once put it, you can't get to good unless you know what good looks like. By looking at organizations through the prism of culture, it's a, it's a really useful way of seeing what an exceptional organization looks like compared to one that is not. So the five cultures are these, basically. The culture of integrity, this is essential because it speaks to the character of an organization. And yes, organizations do have character. And integrity is a critical part of organizational character. So we're going to be looking at that in this in this episode. We're also going to be looking at the culture of leadership. Why? Because that speaks to the to the behavior of an organization. If you really want to know about the culture of leadership in an organization, go into the organization and see how people behave. That tells you everything you need to know about leadership in that organization. The third culture that we're going to be looking at is the culture of power. And the reason why we're going to be doing that is that speaks to what the organization believes and org organization's beliefs. It speaks to organizational ideology, organizational philosophy. Again, if you if you see how people exercise power, that tells you a lot about what they believe. Do they share it? Do they look to empower others? If they do, that tells you what they believe. It says something about their ideology and their philosophy. 
We're also going to be looking at the culture of aspiration because that speaks to the purpose of an organization and not just the purpose in terms of objectives and, and end goals and aims, but also the purpose an organization has for its people, right? That's really important, how it wants to nurture and develop and, and grow and cultivate exceptionalism amongst its own workforce. So we're going to be looking at organizational aspiration as a way of understanding organizational purpose. And then the fifth culture that we're going to be looking at in this episode is the culture of accountability because that speaks to organizational attitude and attitude is so important there's so much you can glean and learn from an organization when you get a sense of how accountable people are within that organization you can get a sense of organizational discipline you can get a sense of organizational ha habits you can get a sense of ways of working you can get a sense again of not just accountability, but also integrity. You can just get a really useful sense from an organization, just finding out about that culture of accountability. So I think this quintet of cultures are, in my view, uh, the five most important vital organs of an organization. They, to a large extent, determine how organizations arrange themselves and structure themselves. Everything else I think that an organization does, every other function that it performs, whether it's budget management or risk management, how it performs its performance management or commerce function, how it performs its learning and development function. All of these different functions are subordinate to this quintet of cultures. This quintet of cultures, integrity, leadership, power, aspiration, and accountability. Others may have a different view, you may have a different view of this, and that's absolutely fine. I'd certainly be interested in hearing your feedback and hearing your thoughts about what you think are the most important cultures of an organization. But this is my take, this is how I see it. So let's dig into these cultures. So the first one is the culture of integrity. As I think I mentioned, integrity speaks to the character of an organization. And I'm a firm believer in the idea of the perception and persuasion continuum. If you've looked at my blogs in the past or some of the stuff that I've posted on Twitter, you'll see that I make reference to a perception to persuasion continuum. And basically that continuum starts with integrity. It starts with integrity. And from integrity, it goes on to credibility. So integrity feeds credibility, credibility feeds confidence, confidence feeds trust, trust feeds influence, and influence feeds persuasion. So there's that continuum, but it mainlines all the way back to integrity. Again, you think about the people who you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis, the people that you trust most, the people that you have most confidence in, those that you see as being most credible. Well, pretty sure that it will likely mainline all the way back to that sense of integrity. And with integrity, it really is an organizational brand. At a certain point, people no longer question whether an organization will do a certain thing. They anticipate that it will, and they tell others. And the reason why they do that is because the organization has demonstrated integrity. It says what it means. It means what it says. It does what it promises. And the other thing about integrity that I think is really important, and I mentioned earlier that it, it feeds into credibility, but credibility through predictability. The reason why people see you as being credible is because you're predictable. You do certain things. You can be relied upon. You can be depended on. And it's through that consistent repetition and replication, as I mentioned, that organizations, their reputations are established. So just going back to that continuum again. So we've talked about integrity. We've talked about integrity as being basically the foundation. Credibility flows from that. And then from that flows confidence. Confidence as being a natural byproduct, I think, of, of credibility. And then you have trust. 
what I often think of trust, trust isn't when you agree with people or they agree with you, that that's, it's not that transaction. Actually, real trust, real trust is when you disagree with people, when you disagree with their ideas, when you disagree with their suggestions, but you decide to go with them in spite of the fact that you disagree with them. That's what trust really looks like. And then of course, from trust you have influence, which for me is the ultimate organizational superpower because it's a, you know, influence is about standing, it's about bearing. And with influence, you can persuade others. So it's incredibly powerful. If you flip that on its head though, what does it look like in an organization that doesn't have integrity? Well, it's really interesting because obviously integrity is not a static state. You don't have integrity and that opens up doorways for opportunities and then you don't have it and then you're in a static state. That's not how it works. In the same way as integrity moves organizations forward, a lack of integrity moves organizations backwards. I often think of a lack of integrity a bit like rust. It undermines leadership credibility. It saps confidence in, in the organizational hierarchy. It corrodes trust. It is extremely corrosive. And it's always easy to tell when an organization has little integrity. Just see what their power default is. Instead of utilizing influence and persuasion because you know, they have integrity and credibility and confidence and trust and influence so they can utilize that whole well of soft power, they, they can't do that because they don't have the integrity in the, in the first instance. So what their default is, is it's heavily skewed towards the use of authority. So there's instruction and direction. And in the worst case scenarios, coercion and threats. And again, the reason why that exists in organizations that are low on the integrity scale is because they lack soft power. Okay, onto the second culture. It's the culture of leadership. And I, as I mentioned previously, leadership is really important because it is a very clear demonstration of behaviors. I've always strongly believed that leadership is about demonstration. It's about modeling. It's about exemplifying. You want to get a sense of an organization's values and its beliefs. See how people behave, essentially. See how people behave. That will give you a real sense of uh, organizational leadership and the quality of that leadership within the organization. In the introduction to this podcast, you'll also know that I made reference to the fact that leaders can become successful by helping themselves. And that is absolutely true. And But you can only become, leaders only become significant, only ever become significant by helping others. This is The reason why this is particularly important is because you will see people who ascend to high levels of leadership positions in organizations. And you'll think, well, hang on a minute. How is it that this person has been able to achieve success and they're not even a really good leader? Well, the thing about it is that, you know, leadership success can be grasped through one's own effort. You can, you can grasp it. You can do certain things that will catch the eye and will lead to promotion and progression. That is a matter of fact. You've seen it. I've seen it. We've all seen it. But the different, the differentiation between success and significance, significance is an honor that is bestowed through the appreciation expressed by others. You can't grasp significance. Other people determine whether you are significant. Significance is also important because it's about legacy and leaders have to be obsessed with their legacy. A leader without a legacy is the proverbial sort of single point of failure. As they're on their way out of an organization, the structure that they've built around them literally collapses in their wake. Why? Because they have not spent the time nurturing and culturing leaders, putting deep roots down so that when they go, other leaders will take their place. And we'll come back to this idea of leadership success versus significance in future ep episodes of the podcast, because in my view, it's one of the main reasons why organizations fail to fulfill their potential and fail to develop the capability and potential of their workforce. 
they have leaders whose primary interest is in serving themselves rather than serving others. And in my view, when, it, when people are primarily interested in serving themselves over others, that's not leadership, it's lordship, essentially. Organizations with a mature approach to leadership understand that leadership is a vertical hierarchy that does not just move from top to bottom, but actually it's flexible, it's dynamic, it moves from bottom to top. And they also see leadership as a horizontal lateral hierarchy where people in an organization, leaders, exchange information and interact and collaborate from side to side. So in these organizations, it is ideas that have currency, not seniority. And leadership for ideas can come from anywhere in an organization. And not only that, I think in these organizations, you'll likely find a really strong culture of empowerment. So leaders empowering other leaders who empower other leaders who empower other leaders. So you have this virtual cycle of leadership development, which ensures that the habits and behaviors of leadership can be deep rooted and embedded in a sustainable way. Again, the contrast could not be clearer with those organizations that have a weak leadership culture. In those kinds of organizations, people are much more likely to be competitive than collaborative and delinquent in their responsibilities with regard to nurturing others. And in worst case scenarios, they're more likely to destroy a competitor if the competitor will get credit for an idea that they don't have themselves. So it's, it's quite a toxic kind of culture. So the third culture that we're going to look at is the, is the culture of power. And as mentioned, I think power speaks very much to organize, an organization's beliefs, specifically its ideology and its philosophy. But the truth is, as we know, that Organizations of every size struggle with the concept of power because with power comes choice and access and opportunity and privilege and entitlement and advancement and control and all that good stuff. So those who have power don't often want to share it, much less relinquish it. And those who don't have it are continually hampered by their lack of access to it. I think in organizations, power clearly can bring out the very best in people, but sadly, it can also bring out the very worst. That said, an organization that has a mature relationship with power recognizes that there's absolutely nothing to be gained by centralizing and concentrating power in the hands of a few. Rather, they see significant benefits that are to be gained when power is shared with as many as possible. These kinds of organizations recognize that without a plurality of employees able to wield power, there will be a plurality of those paralyzed without it. They recognize that. And mature organizations also recognize that fundamentally power is not a hierarchical construct. It is a social one. So think about it this way. If a manager in an organization or someone in a leadership position has vested in them the authority to direct and instruct others to perform particular tasks, that is not how that task is going to be performed. Ultimately, the completion of that task, the performance of that function, has to do with the quality of relationships, the bonds of trust, the personal integrity, the relationship between the person who's asking for that task to be performed and the person that will be performing that task, not hierarchical power. And I think that's an important point to bear in mind. Mature organizations don't see power as a means through which to effect control. Rather, they see it as a means through which to enable others to take control and make decisions for themselves. For mature organizations, they calculate that dissipating power gives more people a better opportunity to achieve more things. So it's a very sort of pragmatic, economical almost approach to, to power. And then, of course, if you contrast that with organizations that are not mature, their approach to power is purely reductive. Sharing power is commensurate to loss to the extent that they see any advantage in empowering their employees. Those advantages are often outweighed by the perceived risks of doing so. Their disposition and bearing is almost entirely why should we do this rather than 
how can we do it? And certainly not how can we do it better? So the fourth culture we're going to touch on now is the culture of aspiration. As you might recall from the introduction, aspiration speaks to an organization's purpose. It, it really does. And again, not just the purpose in terms of the organization's goals and its objectives and what it wants to achieve downstream, but the purpose it has for its people. And aspiration and the culture of aspiration can either be the sum total of the organization's ambitions and goals and aims and its vision, or it can be the sum of its insecurities. Let me put it in a slightly different way. Organizations are either bedwetters or bed makers. Think about that imagery for a moment. In terms of the imagery of the bed maker, there is a sense of responsibility, duty and pride. You think about someone who's making their bed. There's also an implicit sense of mission and purpose and directness, sense of objectives, because after all, you know, you're making a bed, you want to achieve that objective. And the wonderful thing about organizations that are bed makers is that they do foster and promote this whole sort of culture of aspiration. And that culture of aspiration is actually quite contagious. I've seen it myself in workplaces where aspiration co-mingles with empowerment. And the results are significant in terms of higher levels of employee engagement and higher levels of productivity. So the bed maker organization focused on objectives, dutiful, direct, intentional, purposeful. Again, contrast that with the neurosis that grips the, that grips the bedwetting organization prevents them from letting go of their petty, small-minded insecurities. They become so accustomed to lying in, to lying in their sort of proverbial soil that they no, they're no longer capable of distinguishing a good decision from a bad one. So there's real benefit in not just being aspirational, but being aspirational for your people. Aspiration for people means development of leaders. It means the growth and development of capabilities and talents and competencies, and organizations benefit richly from that. And the fifth and final culture that I want to touch on is the culture of accountability. And again, from the introduction, I said that the culture of accountability speaks to attitude. And attitude is so important in organizations. If you give someone a task and they immerse themselves in that task, that's all about attitude. If something goes wrong and people are quick to acknowledge that that's down to me. That's all about attitude. When I think about attitude, in particular, the culture of accountability, from what from which attitude I, I believe is, is so much a part, accountability is not just accountability for what you do. It's also about accountability for what you see. Um, in these organizations, there is no such thing as plausible deniability. It's only about accountability. I remember once, and I'm going to say something about discipline, because I do think that there is that sort of triumvirate between uh, discipline, attitude, and accountability. I was listening to um, a US Army general giving a briefing on Capitol Hill. This was probably in the mid-2000s. And he mentioned that discipline is doing the right thing when no one is looking. And for so many years, that was my go-to definition of, of discipline. I absolutely loved it. And then I remember uh, some while later, I thought, well, actually, I'm going to modify that slightly because discipline is doing the right thing when nobody cares. But so is accountability. Accountability is doing the right thing when nobody cares. Think about it. If nobody cared whether or not you did the right thing, would you still do it? Look at it a slightly different way. If you believed that you could get away with doing the wrong thing, would you still, doing, would you still do the right thing? And if everyone around you was doing the wrong thing, would you still do the right thing? Because the thing about accountability is that the first 
person that you are accountable to is not others. It's not even your organization. You're accountable fundamentally to yourself. And one of the interesting things about these sorts of organizations is they have this sort of collective accountability approach for successes and failures. They recognize themselves in the successes of others, and they also recognize themselves in the failure of others. They're not of the let's throw people under the bus brigade, not at all. However, the flip side, because there is always a flip side, for organizations where there is little or no culture of accountability, these organizations decay and atrophy really quickly. Um, attitudinally, they are they think in a completely different way. And I would look at it this way. Oftentimes what destroys these organizations are not the big things. They're the cumulative effect of the small things. You know, organizations decay and die not because of deficiency in the big things that matter. They decay and die because of their delinquency in the little things that count. Simple things like neglecting to say good morning. I mean, that seems innocuous. But good morning is more than sort of a casual social norm or social ritual. It's an expression of shared humanity. It's a conversation start. It's an opportunity to make and sustain a connection. And it's a means to build bridges. Likewise, in these organizations that don't have a sense of accountability, one of the other things you'll probably notice in these sorts of organizations is that generally a, a failure to express gratitude and thanks to colleagues who have undertaken a piece of work. I mean, that is so, I mean, it seems like a small thing, but actually it's not a small thing because when you fail to recognize colleagues that have undertaken a piece of work, essentially what you're doing is you're depriving them of a natural want to be acknowledged and affirmed and validated for their effort and for their accomplishments. So it's this sort of cumulative effect of these small things that sometimes can really affect an organization in quite a significant way and can lead to the atrophy of that organization. And I suppose the only the other way to look at it is think of how people perform and how they act and how they behave when they feel valued. When they feel valued, they work harder, they're much more committed, they are much more productive in terms of how they do their work. So there's a really interesting point here about accountability. Organizations that are accountable, they work in a collective way. They're not just focusing on what they do, they focus on what others do. Their standards are much higher. Organizations that are not accountable, they start dropping the little things. The little things are the first to go, but ultimately the little things are the things that destroy them. So the five cultures that I've mentioned above, are, I think they're quite good scene setters. And again, they're intended to create a framework for the series and discussions to come in, the, in this podcast. And if we accept that these are what good looks like, then it makes it easier to dig deeper and ask more searching questions in forthcoming episodes of the podcast series. So as we wrap up this inaugural podcast on the 11th thing, here are some initial conclusions, initial-ish conclusions that we might be able to draw. Perhaps, first one for me is that perhaps organizational exceptionalism is less a conscious decision and more a determination to do things that create the conditions for exceptional outcomes. Perhaps the best way to describe this is, I remember a quote, I guess, that was attributed to the late Steve Jobs, who's reported to have said, do not focus on making profit, focus on making a great product and profit will come. So it's interesting. What he was basically saying is that don't focus on your outcome. Don't, don't focus on your ultimate end goal, which is obviously to be a profitable business and to, you know, to stay in business. Just focus on creating the conditions that will make it possible for you to stay in business, focus on making a great product. So maybe exceptionalism is that very thing. It's, it's about creating those conditions. It's about doing the small things. That's a possibility. But if we accept that as a, as a sort of hypothesis, then organizations do not become exceptional because they search for exceptionalism. Maybe 
they become exceptional because they do ordinary things exceptionally well. Again, that's a potential hypothesis to test. That said, there is an interesting question for me about the contrast between growth in organizations that, if you like, is genetically modified. So this overly manufactured, overly engineered approach to trying to become exceptional and that approach, which is essentially organic, which is about doing little things, just doing the basics and just being consistent with the basics. Are they both sustainable over the long term? Is one better than the other? Perhaps that's something we might explore in a forthcoming podcast. I think what you can safely say is that whilst organizations can become successful doing what everyone else does, that is entirely possible. Those that become exceptional do what no one else has tried. And I, and I think it's interesting sometimes when you think, well, an organization says, yes, this is best practice in another organization. But what you might not have is the reason why it's been successful in another organization, the driving ethos that has given that particular practice roots, that has enabled it to grow, that has enabled it to flourish. So be careful what you pick up from others. You can't always simply lift and shift from one organization to another. So I've really enjoyed this podcast and hope you have as well. There are several others in the works in the pipeline that will be available in the next few weeks. So look out for podcasts on organizational dynamics, on organizational branding, also on personal branding, on leadership and on team building. And as I mentioned, I will be bringing in invited guests who will be talking on some of these topics. And that's it from me. Uh, but before I sign off, can I ask that you subscribe to Believeonomics on YouTube, like and share this podcast across your social networks. Please also follow Believeonomics on Twitter and on Instagram if you have accounts on those platforms. And if you want to read more about the issues covered in this podcast, please head over to Paula on Medium.com. That's Paula on Medium.com, where I post a new blog once a week. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to catching up with you again soon.